The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. chapter 6, verses 30 through 56, as we consider these miracles of Christ in his public ministry. Reminds me that when, uh, when Steve Jobs was trying to rebuild Apple Computer, he tried to compel prominent executives uh, to join his team at Apple with a vision that they would change the world. And uh, Steve Jobs, in some ways, did succeed by introducing the Macintosh personal computer some three decades ago, and the iPhone uh, some ten years ago now. And one could say that they changed the world. But not really. Sure, we communicate differently, we get things done differently, but people are still people. Sin is still sin. And like our forefathers, we still face death and the judgment to come. This week of Advent, as we celebrate the birth of Christ, we come to these somewhat familiar miracles of Jesus that we might better understand the one who truly changed the world. Please follow as I read Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. 
immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, as many as touched it were made well. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let's pray. Father, this Advent season, we would ask that you might open our eyes, that we might behold the riches of your word, that you might apply them to our minds and our hearts. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. More than 200 years ago, in December of 1805, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark and some dozen rugged soldier explorers were camping at Fort Clatsop in northern Oregon on the mouth of the Columbia River, which fed into the Pacific Ocean. And there they would winter before their return back to the east and to civilization. They had just accomplished their mighty feat of a -a two-and-a-half-year epic journey traveling some 8,000 miles by raft and on foot, and some at the end on horseback. One of the most marvelous expeditions in human history. In 1805, there were no planes, trains, or automobiles. They had no internet or telephone or telegraph or even the Pony Express. Medical knowledge was primitive by our standards today. Now, at the low cost of only $40,000 to the American taxpayer, imagine that. America is quite different today. Society has changed thanks to advances in transportation, communication, and medical technologies. We enjoy a higher standard of living than our rugged pioneer forefathers who helped civilize the wildness of the Great Plains in the West. I can hop on a plane and go visit my parents in Houston in a matter of hours. My daughter can use her video, uh, video tool on her phone to have a video phone conversation with her grandparents in Wisconsin. If our family has a medical crisis, we have some of the best medical professionals within a few hours' drive just near, nearby in Baltimore or Philadelphia. 
The U.S. government in recent months has given approval to Moon Express, the first private company that is promising flight service to the moon. By 2026, at the cost of only $10,000, you can have a shuttle ride to our moon. Jesus traveled relatively short distances, and all by foot. He communicated to great crowds without a megaphone, video conferencing tools, or a Twitter feed. He left nothing in writing, as far as we know. In fact, he used nothing that we might call technological today. And yet, Jesus changed the world. This passage introduces three of the significant miracles that Jesus performed. But I believe more than these miracles, what is far more marvelous is how Jesus demonstrates compassion on the crowds. He calms the fears of his followers, and he cares for the needs of individuals. In a world afflicted with chaos, fear, and self-concern, three keys are needed for changing the world by providing compassion, calm, and care in Jesus' name. Well, on this occasion, Jesus and his disciples were in much need of rest. The disciples had been very busy going out in pairs to do ministry. They needed a retreat to reflect upon the things that they had learned. And perhaps they were even weary with great sorrow, having just heard the news of John the Baptist's death at the hands of Herod. They needed a getaway. As people were coming and going, they didn't even have any leisure to eat. And so they sought a desolate place by boat. And yet their escape did not go unnoticed. The people saw their destination and they met them there in advance. Now after a long, hard day, few of us are eager to serve, to meet the needs of others. We might want to check out. And yet a spouse needs to talk. Children need help with homework. The house is a mess. Your boss may text you one more request after hours. Nobody likes their plans interrupted, especially when you intend on some R&R. But when Jesus sees the crowds on the shore, he does not see roadblocks in the way of his retreat. He is not like the great Oz who tells Dorothy, come back tomorrow. Rather, the text says he has compassion because he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Perhaps even from the lake, they literally looked like sheep, dressed in their white garments with the green grass on the hill behind them. But Jesus does not just feel compassion. He takes action. He feeds this crowd spiritually and then physically. Matthew chapter 9 adds that the, the crowds were harassed and helpless. They lacked good shepherding. No one was feeding them from God's word. They were in bondage from a lack of teaching, oppressed by legalism and false understandings of God their Father. 
You know, I don't believe Jesus was teaching them seminars on how to be more productive, how to increase and improve a a higher crop yield, to increase their herds and catch a fish, as important as those things are. Nor do I believe he was equipping them on how to be technologically savvy in a global economy or diversify their retirement investments, as important as those things are as well. Jesus was teaching them about his Father, how to know him, to be loved by him, and how to love one's neighbor, and how to live in a fallen world as salt and light, as ambassadors of the true king, as children of the living God. But it got late. The disciples checked their watches, they nod to one another, and they suggested Jesus that he send the crowds away so they could go find places to buy food. They had served enough. They were ready to start their retreat. But Jesus is not done serving. He tells the disciples, you, you give them something to eat. It was their turn to feed The disciples calculate that it would take at least a man's eight months' wages to feed such a crowd of men, women, and children. This is just not happening. The disciples did not have such resources. But Jesus does. He takes initiative setting the crowds down into groups, reminiscent of the crowds at the Exodus. Mark gives particular attention to the the green grass, perhaps alluding to Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. The good shepherd was here. The new Moses, who has something better than manna to feed his people, has arrived. Jesus here is contrasted with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who neglected their flock. Herod, who even killed John, one of the few faithful shepherds of the people, Jesus here proves to be the good shepherd. I still can remember the sermon preached at the liberal church I grew up in, where the preacher insisted that the miracle on this occasion was the people sharing their private reserves of food so that everyone had something to eat. Nothing could be more ridiculous. I still burn with anger at my childhood preacher who twisted the word of God to fit his own agenda. John's gospel makes it even more clear that Jesus performs a great miracle. The people compare him with Moses, who fed them the bread of heaven. And Jesus on this occasion calls himself the very bread of life. He rebukes the hard-hearted who are less interested in feeding on God's word and want merely a meal ticket, or perhaps see him as a champion to lead them to victory in Jerusalem. And yet Jesus still has compassion on these people regardless of their motives. This past Thursday night, my wife and I went to hear Donald Trump at the Giant Center in Hershey, And while there, we found found ourselves surrounded by just salt-of-the-earth kind of people. Just honest, hard-working folks who love America, 
who are tired of the nonsense in Washington. You can say what you want about Trump, his character flaws, his rants, his impulsive tweets. But many people agree that he won the election because he connected with people who are suffering, who feel like they've been left behind in the American economy. And whether real or not, he communicated empathy and compassion with people, giving them the impression that he truly was listening to Americans who were tired of the same old, same old from both political parties. Well, whether or not Trump lives up to the promise and the hype, I remain convinced that elections don't change the world. Compassion does. Jesus shows us how to change the world by his compassion on the masses, the countless souls in spiritual darkness, ignorant of the truth. They need teaching from the light of the gospel. The millions trapped in poverty, suffering under oppressive regimes, uh, girls recycled through human trafficking, need liberation to the power of God's word to change hard human hearts, and it takes people of boldness and compassion to stand up to injustice and to demand righteousness. You see, action flows out of compassion when we truly see people in need. Ask God to give you eyes to see, a heart to feel, and opportunity to act in Jesus' name. I believe this applies just as well at home. Parents, do you have compassion upon your children, whom you brought into this sinful world when they're argumentative, when they're struggling in school, when they make poor decisions? Will you have compassion upon family members and friends, perhaps estranged over time, people who are suffering loneliness, perhaps dealing with consequences to poor decisions or even suffering for no, from no fault of their own? Will you have compassion on someone who interrupts your plans, makes you late, miss a deadline? We believe that inconveniences are some of the best opportunities for kingdom work. Well, sensing that the disciples were getting antsy, Jesus sends them back across the lake and dismisses the crowd himself. Jesus needed solitude, time alone with his Father in prayer. And once again, Jesus shows us how to change the world. Prayer changes things. You want to be a world changer? Pray. Do you want our president-elect to lead with integrity, to make good decisions? Pray. Do you want this country to turn right again? Pray. Do you want to see revival in our American churches? Pray. Would you like to see the nations gathered into the arms of Jesus? Pray. Would you like to see peace in the Middle East? Do you desire peace in your own home, in your marriage, with your kids, with your schools, with your workplace, 
pray. Don't tell me you don't know how to pray. Ask God and pray, and you will change the world. Jesus sees his disciples after prayer, making painfully slow progress against a strong headwind. And so he walks out to them at 3 a.m., the fourth watch of the night. And it's odd here that Jesus meant to pass them by, perhaps to test them to see if they would cry out to him. And a little reminder here that truly we can do nothing apart from him, even sail across a lake. Well, the disciples have two reactions to him. First, they're terrified because they think they're seeing a ghost. But second, after he gets into the boat with them and calms down the wind, they are astounded. But the key to this text is that Jesus calms their fears. Take heart, he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. These words should have echoed in the minds and the hearts of the disciples. Like a thunderclap from heaven, Jesus was speaking the way the God of the Old Testament spoke to his people. I am the Lord your God. Do not be afraid. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Bible exhorts us not to fear some 360 times. My wife and I contemplate writing a a one-year Bible devotional with a a verse from Scripture that addresses God calming our fears for every day of the year. People are afraid of losing their health, losing their minds, losing their marriage, their kids, their retirement savings. Every Four years, our presidential election is the great revealer of fears. Half the country fears the nation's going down the tubes when they lose. For you Trump supporters, may you remember where you were months ago when you were anticipating defeat. Think about the people dreading that this country is coming apart at the seams. But what do you fear? Loneliness. Becoming penniless, chronic health problems, even death. Perhaps you fear pain, hardship, making hard decisions, rejection, and the disapproval of others. Some people fear the holidays because it conjures up painful memories or perhaps it confronts painful tensions in family relationships. Come. Come to the one who calms our fears. Every loss in this life can be great gain if surrendered at the feet of Jesus. And don't become hard-hearted like the disciples. Notice Mark rebukes them in verse 52. When he reveals that they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Hardened means stubborn, without feeling. The disciples were hardened with doubt fear, confusion, selfish ambition, narrow-minded thinking, unbelief. They should have known, having just witnessed Jesus feeding 5,000 men, that he was the true shepherd, that he would take care of them, that he would provide for them, and yet they gave way to fear. Perhaps Peter had this encounter in mind. 
when he writes later in his letter, 1 Peter 3, exhorting wives not to give way to fear. Well, you and I can't walk on water, but we can walk with Jesus in the confidence of our Father's care and protection for us. And when we do so, we are able to calm down others who are driven by their fears. You can rarely help somebody if you don't understand their fears. The woman contemplating abortion is driven by great fear. The man considering suicide is in bondage to fear. 1 John 4 says that perfect love drives out fear. Abide in the love of Jesus, the one who calms all our fears. Well, Jesus shows compassion on the crowds even when they interrupted his agenda. He calmed his disciples' fears even when they failed to believe in him rightly. Finally, he also cares for other people's needs even when those needs are overwhelming. Well, perhaps due to the strong headwind, the company doesn't make it to Bethsaida. They end up on the shores of Gennesaret. And yet still, the crowds recognize Jesus and come flocking to him, so much for their retreat plans again. You can almost hear the disciples groaning. They had fed people all day. They had battled headwinds all night. And now they have to triage the sick who are coming on beds from every direction. I understand that U.S. doctors that go overseas to very needy places in Africa and Haiti, they they just face needs that are endless from sunup to sundown there healing and comforting and providing care. That's the impression Mark gives us as Jesus went throughout the villages, the cities, the countryside, even the marketplaces as people sought to even touch the edge of his garment that they might be healed. One wonders if the Godhead reasoned that three years of public ministry is all that Jesus' physical body could handle due to the workload. Well, Mark does not give us details on how Jesus healed people in particular on this occasion, but other accounts make it very clear that Jesus healed people up close and personally. He didn't merely wave his hand over a region and pronounce everybody healed all at once. He didn't build hospitals or medical clinics. Those would come later. Triage and germ theory and antiseptic would have to wait some 1,800 years. Jesus healed without a degree from a prestigious medical school. The way that Jesus cared for people changed the world. And the world continues to change when people care and heal in his name. You see, Jesus' idea of changing the world is very different from ours. He did not heal everybody, even in the land of Canaan. And nor did he do it in an efficient manner. Jesus took his time with people. He met their needs as whole persons. Many doctors today complain, feeling squeezed by profit-maximizing pressures from insurance companies and hospital conglomerates. They can't spend time with their patients, and so they get less quality care. I'm afraid that our Views of health in the human person are being driven further and further by values that reflect less and less God's intent. 
and the Magician's Nephew, Book One of the Chronicles of Narnia. Diggory Kirk and others witness Aslan creating the new world Narnia in song. They marvel as animals and plants and trees come popping out of the ground, and even a a piece of scrap metal from a lamppost on earth falls into the ground, and minutes later up pops a a mature lamppost. Uncle Andrew marvels and begins to realize that Narnia's magic is quite strong, that anything planted in it could mature into a finished product in seconds. So Andrew envisions bringing back scrap metal from earth to mass-produce fancy cars and other luxuries. His eyes gleam with greed as he imagines the riches that would be his if he could just harness Narnia's power. And there's Diggory, who can only think of taking back one magic fruit from Narnia to restore his sickly mother to her youthful health. Uncle Andrew cared about money and power, efficiency. Diggory cared about others. Caring for other people's needs may be a sickly child who needs care in the middle of the night, a teenager who neglects an assignment and waits too long to finish it for school, Maybe taking in an aged parent, an in-law, or helping refugees with a ride to church. Providing tutoring for public school children, Bible instruction for little ones. And maybe praying for and writing to missionaries, working difficult soil in far-off places. Our calling to care for people establishes even when the needs seem endless. We must avoid the temptation to be reluctant or make excuses to not get involved. Do something. Even when you can't do everything, care in Jesus' name, and you will change the world. Jesus did not win an election or start a revolution or invent some technology that makes our lives so much better. He never left Palestine, and he only met with people that numbered in the tens of thousands. He impacted those thousands deeply, though, by his compassion, by his calming presence and tender care. He changed people's lives, not just by his miracles, but by speaking the truth in love, and he demonstrated God's love by offering himself as a sacrifice for sinners, suffering the penalty you and I deserve, meriting our entrance into heavenly glory. On earth, Jesus taught and showed people how to have a living relationship with his God and Father, how to live free from the bondage of sin, how to live with hope of eternal life. This Christmas, reflect upon how the compassion and care of Christ has changed you. And then consider what small role you might play in God's grand design to change the world forever. To him 
be the glory. Amen. Father, we thank you for giving us a compassionate Savior, a forgiving high priest, one who cared and met our greatest needs. And we pray that we may walk in his strength, in his compassion, and his care for others as we go about the work you have called us to do. Bless us this week as we celebrate his birth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.